Our first reading is from Psalm 3, verses 1 to 8, which may be found on page 448 in the Bibles we provide. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The word of our Lord. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, which is on page 809 in the Bibles we provide. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The Gospel of Christ. come this morning to uh, almost the end of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, as we come to a section on spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, you'll find this on page 979 of our Bibles. Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am 
an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Last Sunday, we saw Paul illustrating the life of wisdom, the life that God wants his people to live, filled with his spirit, informed by his word. And he illustrated with three key relationships of life, marriage, family, work. And his words were so counterintuitive, so countercultural, so subversive to what was an oppressive social order in the ancient world, that over the centuries, those words and others like them in the New Testament, the gospel applied, has changed the world into the world that, at least in parts of the world, we know as relatively free. It's because of the gospel and because of Christian people, when you look back at the history of these things, that slaves were finally set free and slavery abolished, that women finally were given the vote and then much later than the vote were given equal rights, and that children were protected by child labor laws and child abuse laws. That, that we all agree is good, is the result of the kind of subversive text that we studied last Sunday. Now, how can it be counterintuitive? How can it be so subversive? This is how, the way that Paul did it is just wonderful. In addressing the powerless members of each of those three areas, he did not call them to revolution or rebellion. He did not say, in a Christian home, a woman should no longer submit. In a Christian home, a child should no longer obey. In a Christian home, a slave should no longer obey. No. What he said was, those of you in positions of submission, submit. But don't do it simply because that's the social order. Do it out of love for the Lord. Do it as a ministry. Do it in his name. Be the best wife, the best child, the best slave, so that you will bring honor and glory to the Lord in the situation where you find yourself, whatever it is. You say, well, how does that do any more than preserve the status quo? Ah, it was his next move that was so brilliantly subversive. He then turned to every, each of the groups in power in those relationships and said, under the heading of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, okay, husbands, this is how you submit to your wife, by loving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you are to love your wife in that same way. She's not your property. You can't do with her as you like. You are a picture to the world of that self-sacrificial love with which Christ has loved you. That's how you're to love her. As she gives up her life for you, you are to give up your life for her. And the world looks and sees two people laying down their lives for each other. Fathers, you have a father in heaven. How has he loved you? He has loved you with self-sacrificial love. His love has lifted you up to make you his child and a joint heir with your elder brother Christ. So you're to love your children that way, not as property of yours who live to fulfill your hopes and dreams for your family. Rather, you are so to live that your children will be raised 
in the discipline and instruction of the Lord who has loved you in this way. The one from whom, as he said back in chapter uh, 3, that it is God from whom fatherhood derives its name and its meaning. And therefore, fathers, that's how you're to love your kids. It's not on a grasping, bossy, I'm in charge way. It is as the one placed in authority to use that authority in order to build them up and prepare them for life. And in a still cruel situation of slaves and masters where even the greatest philosophers and thinkers said, your slave is just your property, use them as you want. Paul writes, masters, don't you realize that you have a master in heaven? How has he treated you? What does it mean to be master? He points back in those words to Jesus' whole ministry where he was constantly turning the idea of what it meant to be in charge upside down and making leadership a matter of service, a willingness to take the lowest place, to do the job that no one else wanted. Leadership by example, that's what Jesus always did. He said that's how, what it means to be a master. And you are judged in the same way as those whom you call your slaves. It was that teaching that turned the world upside down. And it was a call that goes against the grain of every one of us by nature. Even the most timid people, in truth, don't want to submit. They just do it out of fear. But every one of us wants to be in charge, at least of our lives, at least my space. I want at least those around me to think about me a lot. And the Bible is constantly saying through the gospel, no, this is the heart of what Paul is saying. Whoever you are, husband, wife, parent, child, master, slave, it's not about you. It's about those whom God's entrusted. And you look at that circle of relationships and you find ways to lay down your life in love for them. Now, why do I review all that? Because the turn that Paul now makes is that he now reaches a point where he is, wants to say as emphatically as possible, but there is one area of life where you are never to submit under any circumstance. And there is one realm of creature to which you are never to submit under any circumstances. So while you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, when it comes to spiritual warfare, no, do not submit. Here you go to battle. You be willing to lay down your life in this battle. Be strong. He's been saying almost, it sounds like, be willing to lay aside your strength. Now he says, huh, forget about that when it comes to this. You be strong. So as we turn to his teaching on spiritual warfare, I just want to make a couple of comments. First of all, the great Puritan preachers often spent their lives in ministries on these 10 verses, even less than 10, just on describing the Christian armor. Uh, a classic example is William Gurnell's The Christian Incomplete on Armor, uh, written back in the mid-1600s, 1660, or over a course of years. He preached on the armor of Christ for years, wrote three volumes, which were compressed into two volumes, published there under one jacket, but with 500 pages in each section under that. So that's over 1,000 pages just on the Christian's armor. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the last century, did a whole 
he spent years going through Ephesians and did a whole long series. The big joke in London was one of his women had gone to America for three months, uh, came back to London and said, oh good, I didn't miss anything. He's still unfinally my brethren. Um, So what I want to do this morning is even more ambitious than anything I've ever done before until the first service. But we actually got through it. I want to look at all these 10 verses together, and the reason is that while there can be value in in using every verse and every point as an entry point of all of the teaching of Scripture, that's how they do it. It's not that you've got years worth right there, but you use, okay, truth. Now, what does the Bible teach about truth? Now this. I don't want to do that for this reason. Paul was a prisoner walking around dictating his letter. Somebody was writing. And Paul looks around and he sees the soldiers. He wants to talk about spiritual warfare. And he thinks, boy, I'm surrounded by soldiers every day here. And look at how they dress. And so he will use the the military wear, the armor of a Roman soldier to describe what he elsewhere describes in very different terms. For example, in Colossians 3, he's talking about exactly the same things but there he just talks about a person getting up in the morning and getting dressed, a civilian. You know, throw off your dirty clothes, put on your clean clothes. What is he talking about? He is simply describing to us aspects of what it means to be in Christ. All through the beginning of the letter, over and over and over and over, he said, in Christ, in Christ. You've been chosen in Christ. You've been redeemed in Christ. Things have been revealed to you in Christ. All things are yours in, in Christ, in Christ. What does that mean? Well, he's going to flush it out, and he's using this as an illustration. There are, I believe, six pieces of armor. Some people say, no, seven, the perfect number, because they make prayer one of the pieces of armor. But he doesn't relate prayer to any piece of armor, so we're not going to look at it this way. This is what we're going to do over the next few minutes, unless I have a heart attack or something. Um, Not that I'm feeling bad. I I don't want you. I want us first just to ask, who is for us? Whom are we standing with? And secondly, who's against us? Whom are we always to stand against? And then most of the time spent on what has been supplied to us so that in the day of trouble we may stand. Okay, first of all, who's with us? He makes it very clear that it's the Lord. He says, therefore stand in the power of his strength, the power of his might. Now, why is this important? Just this note. We do not serve a God who is distant, who wishes us well, but who has no idea what we're going through. The Son of God in the mystery of the Trinity, beyond our ability to comprehend or make it clear doctrinally, the Son of God has entered our history, become one of us, joined himself to us, And he has faced everything we face. The author of Hebrews said he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sinning. So we seek the face of one who knows what we're facing and furthermore, who has defeated the foe that we're facing. So it's crucial that we understand that when we stand in the Lord, when we walk out day by day our union with Christ, we have nothing to be afraid of. Because he who is in us, he who is with us, is greater than he who's in the world. 
So that's the first note. But how do we experience that reality? And this is what I think we too often miss. People say, I've tried to think about it and yet I keep falling. We experience the reality of our union with Christ through our communion with one another within the body of Christ. And if you're not connected to the body of Christ, if you don't have Christian people who are part of your life, speaking into your life and into whose lives you are speaking, if you're not tactily with real faces and names part of the body of Christ, you will likely not ever really know what your union with Christ is about because it is in that sacramental relationship of the body of Christ, working, walking, living, worshiping, praying, studying together, doing ministry together, speaking into, that's where we experience our union with Christ. So the one who's with us, the one in whose strength we will conquer, the one in whom we are told to stand our ground is experienced in the reality of covenanting relationships. That's why it's crucial that you not just be a churchgoer, but a part of the body of Christ. Who's against us? calls him the devil, he speaks of Satan. Satan means the accuser, the one who always accuses God's people. And here's the key. He, he also, just as Christ has his people, his body, he also speaks of the fact that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. Christ joined himself to us in flesh and blood. Satan is not. We're fighting against what he calls principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Do you remember that he talked about these guys back in chapter 3? In that incredible verse where he said, it is God's will that through the church, that is through you and me, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might know the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, he depicts a cosmos and more than our cosmos. Who knows the worlds that the creator God has made? but he depicts reality as rich and thick with beings watching, learning, studying us. In some cases, he says here, helping the enemy try to tempt us and draw us away. Now that would be terrifying if we really believed it, unless we realized that these foes have all been defeated. And as we begin, I want to keep reminding you of that simple fact. The enemy is a defeated foe. His legions are defeated by Christ. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, little commentary on the book of Revelation. Forgive me, I've mentioned this before, but I think of it often. Um, Peterson says, you know, down through the centuries, people have thought, both Christians and people of other religions and Uh, ideas have all tried to depict that great final cosmic battle between good and evil. And of course, in our day, we've C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Tolkien most famously in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you come to that point of the great final battle, this cataclysmic event. And he said, people read the Bible that way and don't seem to notice that when in Revelation 20, finally Satan gathers his troops and marches across the plain of this world and surrounds the camp of the saints and the city of God, Peterson said, then in the course of two verses, it just says, 
and fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and Satan was thrown into the lake of fire. He said, if you went out for popcorn, you missed the whole thing. <laughs> In other words, the one who comes against us is already defeated. Uh, the great uh, mid-20th century theologian and uh, New Testament commentator, Oscar Kuhlmann, who'd been through the ravages of World War II Europe, put it this way. He said, D-Day was the day when Germany realized it was defeated. And everything it fought from that moment on was an attempt somehow to survive the final cataclysm. But he said, everyone in the know knew on both sides that the war was over. It would still be bloody. There would still be wounded and killed people. There would be slaughter still. But the war was decided at D-Day because the Soviets were coming from the east. And now the foothold in Europe had been taken and the Allies were moving across. He said that's what the cross was. It was D-Day. Satan knows that he's defeated, and his troops are defeated, and we are part of the mopping up operation in spiritual warfare. So if we don't realize we're in battle, we're going to get wounded out there. I mean, if you go out into a war zone with your headphones on trying to walk across the street, you're going to get blown away. But we don't have to be afraid because we're facing a defeated foe. Okay, how do we then stand in the day of battle? Six pieces of armor. And again, these are, there's, there's nothing inherently spiritual about the pieces of armor, but about what they represent. That's the key. Paul's just looking at a soldier and taking pieces of armor and naming it. First of all, the belt of truth. Now, why that? Why do we start there? Because a Roman soldier wore a tunic. And when his belt wasn't on, the tunic flapped around. And if you got in a fight with somebody, uh, all he had to do, if you ever see judo people fighting, they tighten up that gi. You've got to get it here. Why? Because otherwise you're flapping around. And if it comes loose during a match, they're trying to get free to get because their jacket's flapping around. You grab it, throw them down. He said, truth is what gathers you and prepares you for battle. Now, why does that matter to us? Because you and I live in an age that often especially in centers of knowledge that ought to know better, believe that the claim to have the truth is oppressive and prevents freedom. The idea that you would believe that you know what is true is, is considered oppressive. And we want to be free, free inquiry and all the rest. The problem is this. We have a laboratory of what the world looks like when the truth of God is not permitted to have a voice. We know what that looks like. Uh, you know, the whole new atheist movement, particularly the four horsemen, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, Dennett, Dawkins, and Sam Harris, began their work together after 9-11. It was a response to 9-11. When the towers were hit, they said, religion is going to be the end of all of us. And we can't just attack Islam. It's, it's every bit. It's religion itself. We have to annihilate it or religion will be responsible for annihilating us. They were very bright people and I'm or are very bright, except Christopher Hitchens. Now he knows what he didn't know then, tragically. And they wanted a good, which is safety. But they failed to look at the 20th century, which is perhaps the most dramatic laboratory in all of history 
of what happens when a nation defines God out of the game. What you get is not heaven on earth. It's not a free society. You get Stalinist Soviet Union. You get Mao's China. You get Pol Pot's Cambodia. You get the dictatorships they have right now still in North Korea. That is a world without God. Dostoevsky said it years before. He said, if there, if there is no God, then everything is permissible, you say. And so he says, you start by girding on truth. And if you want to study that and pursue that, a great place to start is in the excellent little book by the late Pope John Paul II, who wrote a book entitled The Splendor of Truth, in which he addresses that very fact that without the truth of God, there is no freedom. You will always lose it. Gird on truth first. Then the breastplate of righteousness. If I'm in Christ, then his righteousness is mine. He's taken my sin, my rebellion, my unrighteousness, and dealt with it on the cross, and he's given me all that is his. And so when attacks come from the enemy, when he says, how dare you say those things, you don't, you're, you, you're inconsistent, you're a hypocrite, you've done this, you've done that, you say, everything you say is true, and I'm in Christ, and he has paid for my sin, and his righteousness will protect me from every attack that you can make on me because I am in him, a new creation. And then he says, you put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Why is the gospel a pair of shoes? Because the gospel should keep us from going some places we used to go and should take us places we would never go except for the love of Christ. We will go to places that may frighten us, places that would never appeal to us, but we are drawn there. Our feet take us there because Christ came and found us and redeemed us, the shoes of the gospel of peace. And then he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy. I love those old medieval uh, movies, if they're well made, and especially Viking things, because my mother's Norwegian side. I kind of try to imagine being behind the shield wall. But I always think of that when I read this, because their shield wall, and they stand behind the shield, and let them come. They fire bolts from crossbows. They, the archers fire their longbows, and they're stopped by the shield. That's what he's saying. Satan can fire whatever he will, whatever lies, whatever temptations. If you are holding up in front of you your fervent trust in the promises of God, if you believe God and you say, I will not listen to these lies because I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day, the shield of faith will protect you from all of that. The helmet of salvation, the Roman helmet actually uh, had within it uh, claws and things to give it, a little like an early football helmet, to keep you from being concussed. The things that come, your family collapses, your, your spouse betrays you or leaves you or worst of all dies. I shouldn't say worst of all, some people would prefer that to the other two. Um, but your spouse is gone, your children are, are a mess, you're, you're, you lose your job, your world's turned upside down, your friends aren't there for you anymore. They, these things would crush you, stagger you, knock you to the ground, you get a bad physical diagnosis, you know, it's frightening. Things that would be blows to the head and leave you reeling, perhaps knock you to the ground. Now we're unable 
because you're saved. Salvation is your helmet. What's that? It's the fact that Christ has redeemed you. He's made you his. He has said, nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing. You're mine. And then the offensive weapon, the sixth, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And there's no more beautiful picture of how that works than in our gospel lesson. When Satan came after Jesus to tempt him, Jesus, who had the right to tell him literally to go to hell, instead, three times, says, it is written, and quotes an appropriate scripture that stands against Satan's lies with God's truth. And again, it is written. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Just answers with the appropriate scripture. You can't do that unless God's word is in your heart. I think a lot of us memorize the scripture far less than earlier generations because we've got it available all the time now. We've got it on our cell phones. for Why do I need to memorize it? It's right here. I guarantee you, when temptation is coming and it's strong, when you're feeling under attack, you're not going to sit down and go through your concordance to try to find something appropriate. You need to be putting God's word in your heart. The great 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, When you stab a Christian, that Christian should bleed Bible. We should put the word. I've told you before, forgive me for the hundredth time telling you, but it's my own life experience. My parents, when we were small, made us memorize passages of Scripture. And I've told you before, when I was in the service, when I was in Southeast Asia on R&R going places, I had no right to go, ready to just have fun, unbidden, would come exploding into my mind. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I think, not now, Mother, please stop praying. I'd know she was the other side of the world, 12 hours distance, and praying for me exploding those bombs she'd planted when I was a child. They didn't all work, full disclosure. But they had a cumulative effect. They're still there. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that's what the Spirit uses. The Spirit loves to speak to us through the Word of God. People say, I feel like God's trying to tell me something. I don't know what it is. The more of the biblical vocabulary you have in you, the more easily the Spirit can speak to you in clear words that you say, ah, that's God's word, coming with that full power. Yes, I hear it. I I, I get it. And then prayer, which covers all the rest. And he tells us six things about prayer, but I've only got about two minutes left, so I'll do it quickly. They're easy. They just flow logically. Pray at all times, he says. In other words, don't just wait till you're with a group of people who've gathered for prayer. Um, Always be praying. In fact, Paul, who elsewhere talks about praying without ceasing, 
is telling us the secret to the presence of God in our lives. If we sort of leave God in church or in Bible study or in those formal times when with other people we draw away and sit down and pray and then go out and do our thing and then when we're in trouble go, where is he? Oh God, I'm down here. Yet we forget that he's everywhere and always there. If instead we are always subtext talking to him, always from the heart, every moment, everything we're doing, not praying, not stopping, not, it's not oppressive. It's like being with a dear friend and you're just commenting on things. Look at that. That's so beautiful. In this case, thank you. Or ouch, help, wisdom. He says, always be praying. And then you'll always know that he's with you. You're in Christ and his spirit is in you. That's union with Christ. That's our salvation. Pray in the spirit, he says, secondly. In other words, It's his spirit in you that's going to enable you to pray in this way. When we don't pray in the spirit, in that deep relationship, we wonder sometimes, is God really there? Does he really hear? Am I just talking as atheists accuse me of talking to my imaginary friend, the flying spaghetti monster? No. If you're praying in the spirit, you know. And as Paul says in Romans 8, When we don't know what or how to pray, the Spirit prays for us in groans too deep for words and prays according to the will of God. He simply takes the groans and the longings of our hearts so that we are constantly in that state of prayer. Thirdly, he says, pray in all different kinds of ways, through supplication and also just every way there is to pray, pray. There's not a right or wrong way. If the Lord's Prayer works best for you and you like to pray it all through the day and festoon the various requests with your own, that's great. If you like the Eastern Church's Jesus Prayer, great. If you just like spontaneous prayers of joy, in other words, be repenting, be confessing, be claiming forgiveness, be rejoicing, be thanking, be interceding. All the different ways that you can pray, he just says, do it. Then he says, with perseverance. In other words, don't stop. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep praying. You don't feel like praying? That's a very important time to pray. And if you find yourself so cold of heart that you're doubting whether God is there, the old Puritans used to always say, get another friend or two whom you trust and ask them to pray with you. Because when you pray within the body, you hear God speak. I've done that many times in my ministry when I was just in, I was going through my prayers, but it was such a ritual and so cold, my heart was wrong, and I'd just get with a couple friends and say, pray with me. And as they begin to pray, I hear my Father speak to me. As they hear my prayers, I realize He hears. His final two points are these. He says, pray for all the saints. Wow. (laughs) In our world today, there are over two, and a half, two billion people who claim to be Christians. Um, I'm not going to get a list of their names. What does he mean? He means pray beyond your own experience. Don't get so obsessed about yourself that you're only praying for yourself and people that you know. Pray widely. God loves widely. His work is vast and wide. Pray that way. Find a missionary to pray for. Find a part of the world that's on your heart. Find out everything you can about it and begin to dig in and pray deeply for the people that are there. And then finally, pray for those who ask you to pray for them. Paul says, pray also for me. 
that here as an ambassador in chains, here as a prisoner, I might still proclaim God's truth boldly. Every one of us, every day, whether we recognize it or not, is being tempted to walk away from our salvation. Paul says, stand. Stand fast in his power. Stand fast against the enemy of your soul. He'll make it look as though what he's offering is so attractive. It isn't. It's like cigarette ads, you know, where the picture is of this beautiful couple on a spring day and everything's great and robust and wonderful and down in the corner is the Surgeon General's ad that says, buy me, I will kill you. Stand fast. Put on the armor. You're fighting a defeated foe. Don't roll over. Don't submit to him. Having done all.